Wished No Hope, the podcast. How do you fuck up the Little Mermaid? Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, I am back in love. Oh. No, I'm I'm back in love. I'm, I'm in back love with again. Love. I'm back with love in a okay. big way this week. This is my 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 very personal my very personal story. I'm also returning to the genre of jukebox musical. And it's a love? This is my love. Oh, God. This is the type that chronicles the artist's career using their music, but it's also more than that. You know, we kind of talked about how there's the um, the Mamma Mia, and then there's the Tina. Um, wait, you didn't see Tina, right? No, I had tickets the, yeah, uh, right, the right, evening right, right. that uh, Broadway right. shut down, but uh, I did see the documentary. The new documentary. Oh, we, uh, we did too. We just watched it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, so this is this is more in that uh, in, in that realm, I guess. Um. So yeah, uh, I have a deep emotional connection to this artist and to this music, which started when I was quite young. I had a really cool all-in-one record player that would probably be worth something today. It was black and it folded up, and when you opened it up, it had these two pretty like big speakers like hefty speakers on the sides that had really good sound and I was 11 years old when this song came out and I remember buying the 45 and listening to it over and over in my room I doubt very seriously I even knew what it was actually about at the time but I did know I fucking loved the song the mournfulness of it the melody the lyric that meant something more than what I could really put together and I knew something about the artist also that he was reportedly bisexual very flamboyant and hugely famous. But the first thing gave me pause. It made me feel funny. I'm not sure if it was entirely on my own or if a friend or my dad said something about him being a fag, but I stopped playing that record and stopped listening to him for at least a couple of years. I'm sure you know who this is already. I just put the entire thing away or as a way as I could for as long as I could. And the next thing I remember, I was 14 and my parents were getting divorced and I was having headaches, but the doctor said there was nothing physically wrong with me. So I found myself driving to a nearby town to see a therapist to get help for these headaches I was having. But what I was really doing was trying to figure out how to fix myself and, and not be gay. And I would listen to his albums on my cassette player in my first, in first my baby blue Volkswagen, and then my little white pickup truck, and finally my maroon Mercury Tracer on the drive there and going back home. It was almost like music therapy, now that I think about it. The other thing that was occurring simultaneously, besides the growing realization that I wasn't like the other boys because I wanted the other boys, was my growing desire to make something, to express myself creatively, artistically. I had started writing a lot short stories and poems and lyrics and so there was also this lesson happening as I would listen to these albums rhymes and structure and chorus and meaning I now understood the song I had been obsessed with when I was 11 it's called Empty Garden was about the death of John Lennon and there was this agonizing push and pull as I was outwardly convinced I was going to beat this thing being gay and yet immersing myself in this gay artist's music like fully immersing And when I finally saw him live in 1989 at Sandstone Arena in Kansas City, this amazing outdoor arena, I was in a very different place literally and geographically in my life. And I had a truly out-of-body experience. The artist is, of course, Elton John. And the musical, the movie musical, is Rocket Man. Yeah. Um, Took me a while because I was like, with all of your movie musical disdain of me, I was like, well, what? I was like, there hasn't been like a staged Elton John musical. You've like, you've you've broken the rule yeah. several times. I'm so not I saying decided, it's a, not okay. But. I decided to do it. Yeah. Um, so, Rocket Man is billed as a musical fantasy about the fantastical human story of Elton John's breakthrough years. That's kind of that's I think that's the IMDb mm-hmm. description. So this allows it to play fast and loose with the facts, which in some places I think works really well, and in others kind of makes no sense. But alas. That's the artistic license that they that they bought and that they wanted. Um, the story focuses on Elton John's rise from awkward 50s child to pop rock superstar addict of the 70s, ending somewhere in the 80s with a bizarre little coda of sort of current day People magazine fashion shoot uh, and update. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of, there's an interesting development. I don't know if you know all of this. It began development in 2000 with Disney. Uh, 
Um, photographer David LaChapelle was set to direct the film. Really? And Justin oh, wow. Timberlake was going to play the title role. Oh, God. Thank God um, that didn't happen. What? I said, thank God that didn't happen. Oh, I think, I mean, I think it's, I, I, at the time I knew that that was, I knew that that was in a conversation and I thought huh. it was really fascinating. Did you see that video that he did? Um, that this train did? don't stop there anymore. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. No. Okay. I'll have to send it to you. So he did, I think that was the reason, is at some point, I don't know if you remember, do you remember the the video that um, Robert Downey Jr. did of I Want Love back in oh, yeah, that's probably the late 90s? Yeah, I think I did see that. Because basically Elton John decided he didn't want to be in, uh, like on screen anymore. He didn't want to be in his video. His yeah, music yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so then um, Robert Downey Jr. had just gone through all that shit mm-hmm. and he put him in that video. And then he asked Justin Timberlake to play him in another video. And I think that was what spawned this idea that Justin Timberlake should play gotcha. John. Um, so there were disagreements on rating and content with Disney, of course, of course because Elton John had always insisted that it was not going to be a PG movie. It mm-hmm. needed to be an R movie so that he could be truthful about his life, which I uh, give him props for. So it it moved to focus features in 2013 with Michael Gracie. I'm sorry, I don't know what else Michael Gracie has done. I didn't look that up. And Tom Hardy to play Elton John. Really? You know who Tom Hardy yes, is, yeah? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. So that was supposed to begin production in 2014. But then in 2017, Matthew Vaughn, who uh, I I don't know if he, I think it, it I think it says he was editing uh, the movie Kingsman: The Golden Circle, which was the second film in the Kingsman series, said he would produce the film if Taron Egerton Edgerton could play Elton John. And Vaughn then selected Dexter Fletcher to direct. Um, Dexter Fletcher had replaced Brian Singer on Bohemian Rhapsody when that director was accused of ill behavior, which yeah, he had like, been many times. Speaking of canceled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as he had many times before, but apparently with little to no consequence. Mm. Um, but Dexter Fletcher stepped in just of the last, like, literally like two to three weeks of, of filming of Bohemian Rhapsody. So really didn't have any sort of major stamp on it. Um, Dexter Fletcher was primarily an actor prior to working on Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, he'd only had made one short film and finished the shoot on Bo- Bohemian Rhapsody and, and had directed uh, two other full-length films before Rocketman. So this is Dexter Fletcher's second jukebox musical, which I thought was fascinating. There is a, there is a jukebox movie musical called Sunshine on Leith which showcased the songs of the Proclaimers. Really? The Proclaimers, the only song I know of the Proclaimers is the 500 Miles song. Yeah. So, but apparently they have enough songs to hmm. make a jukebox movie musical called Sunshine on Leith. So hmm. there you go. That was in 2013. Was it, are they like a, you know, are they a successful band abroad? It's just that it's like I, one of those weird things. That yeah. It was like the only hit they had in the U.S. was that. But I like think that that is. I feel like yes. that's the case. I'm sure yeah. that's the case. Yeah. I'm sure that's the case. So um, in addition to Justin Timberlake and Tom Hardy slated at one point mm-hmm. to play Elton John, James McAvoy and Daniel Radcliffe were oh, also really? considered Oof. to play Elton I John, which is crush really on, fucking huge fascinating. Huge crush on James McAvoy for whatever oh, reason. I had a huge crush on Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, That's so there funny. we go. Yeah. I would say those are um, each in our respective wheelhouses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it began production in August of 2018 and was released at Cannes on May 16th, 2019. God, can you believe that it was that? It's so recent. Like sometimes yeah. because of because of this year of nothing, yeah, I, I know, feel right? like it was <laughs> like a decade I feel ago. like it was like five years ago. And it was like, I was like, yeah. oh my God, that happened like just 
you know, barely a year before all this went down. Um, so this is interesting. It was written by Lee Hall, who is a playwright and also uh, the screenwriter of Billy Elliot. Oh, and he also well. wrote the book and lyrics for the musical adaptation. Huh. Um, in addition, this is this is hysterical. He wrote screenplays for Pride and Prejudice, The Wind in the Willows, co-wrote War Horse, oh. the, the Spielberg film, yeah. and Cats. He 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 did the adaptation <laughs> of the screenplay with the uh, whoever that director was. I can't. I don't remember, remember but, right now. I mean, he probably got a nice check. So, I bet he got a nice check on both of those. You, yes. Have you seen? Yes. I'm not going to digress on that. But have you seen that film? No, never. <laughs> okay, never. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, I know. I need to. I need to because yeah, but I just haven't done it mm-hmm. yet. Um. Anyway, Taron Edgerton won the Golden Globe for Best Actor, a Musical or Comedy, and the incredibly musically forgettable "I'm Gonna Love Me Again" won Best mm. Original Song. song also won the academy award that year for original song what was it up against do you remember um that's all right no i don't remember okay i do remember feeling like there was there was something i remember there was at least worthwhile else in the mix because i think we watched it together yeah Uh, yeah anyway yeah was that the year that oh i think that was the year that um that Harriet came out and there was maybe? the Cynthia Erivo's, uh, she co-wrote that song yeah, for, for Harriet. And it was mm. a, a much, much better song. Mm. Um, I thought I wanted that song to win and I love Elton John. I, yeah. you know, truly, but I, I don't understand. Yeah, I I, when I read the well. lyric for this song, which I unfortunately didn't write down, I was actually surprised by how interesting the lyric itself mm-hmm. was. But I feel like the music, I don't ever hear the lyric and I don't, um, I felt like the, the music was just sounded like generic s- dozens of other songs of his that are sort of more right. up tempo of the last, you know, two decades. So um, anyway, there were many other nominations, including Grammy, several BAFTAs, Critics' Choice, Hollywood Critics, Glad Media Awards. The cast includes, of course, Taron Edgerton, Jamie Bell, Richard Madden, and Bryce. Oh God, Dallas I forgot Howard. Jamie Bell was yeah, the, which was, is also uh, fascinating, right? Yeah, he played Bernie, Bernie Taupin. Yeah, yeah, I completely forgot about that. I love him so. Yeah, he was great. Much. I mean, Taron was wonderful too. I thought he was. He wonderful. was. The whole cast was great, and yeah. I don't like Bryce Dallas Howard ever. Oh yeah, she was wonderful I liked too. Her. I, I literally didn't really know that that was her until after I saw the movie. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, that was. Bryce Dallas Howard. Hmm. So there are 22 songs total um, that are used in uh, 22 songs of, um, sorry, 22 songs of Elton John's that are used in the film, um, including, and then the the new one, of course, the one that was nominated, uh, the title track, Rocket Man, of course, The Bitch is Back, I Want Love, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, Border Song, Your Song, Crocodile Rock. Tiny Dancer. I was a little disappointed that they included Tiny Dancer because that song has had such oh God, other totally. iconic moments yeah, in other to. films. They didn't need was to Rocket use it. Was Rocket Man but, the one? You'll probably say this. Was he? Is that the one where he was like levitating in the small gig? In, uh, in Crocodile LA? Rock. Oh, that was okay. Crocodile sorry. Rock. Okay. Rocket Man was the one where he went into the pool and and saw yeah. the little boy again. Yeah, yeah. Which okay. I love that sequence. I love yeah. that sequence. Um, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, Honky Cat, Pinball Wizard, Benny and the Jets. Don't let the sun go down on me. Sorry seems to be the hardest word. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. I'm still standing. And a few more obscure tunes, which I appreciated that they put in. Thank you for all your loving rock and roll Madonna, Amarina, which is one of my favorite Elton John songs. Other. And Hercules. Um, 
So I love, you know, of course, there's no way to not talk about this movie, I think, in comparison to yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody, at least a they little came bit. Out so close to each within, other. But yeah, yeah, within months of each other. And the thing that I love about this movie is that it really does it, it it just makes some more interesting choices, For right? Sure. There's like this 100%. whole fantasy world that, that was, and they use the music in different yeah. ways. It was a um, much more interesting film. Yeah, much like more interesting. So much film. more interesting. I mean, it was interesting too that they gave Taron the the um well they they didn't give him the option. They just told him you're going to sing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's basically Elton John was like, "You're going to sing these songs. Sing them how you sing them." Yeah. Um, I didn't realize until it's always so interesting when you find out that someone that an actor is a singer because mm. that's not how you know them, but. He the, apparently, um, I, I found out that he sang your song for his um, like Rada audition oh, you really? know, when he went to school. Yeah, that was that was his thing. So he's always been a huge Elton John fan. I saw him um, uh, on Graham Norton as a guest, which if you haven't seen, is great because it's like when the film came out and he's telling, oh, no, he's telling Graham about, you know, going over to like, you know, Elton's like manner probably is the best word to describe it, if you will, and sort of like singing for him and everything. But yeah, it's a cool one you oh yeah i'll have to check that mm-hmm. out um i love the way it begins how it's you know he 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 walks into the rehab in this outrageous costume which is obviously fantastic and it teaches you right away that this is going to be um a fantastic telling of this story um you know it it like even the opening which i which is fun and amazing like and that boy is terrific his name is um matthew Illesley, by the way, he's hmm. nine years old, and this is his first film. Um, I'm not really sure, like, why he sings the bitches back. Um, I'm not sure exactly what, you know, how I don't I don't know like exactly what that's supposed to tell us and why that song was used, but it brings us into his past and it places us into this conflict and um and and you know it gets the movie started and it tells you kind of everything you need to know, which is which is. Mm-hmm. Something that, as a writer, I, I loved so much. Keep it on a Friday, that's all right. Feel them like a stick on a Saturday night. I convinced the best that your social dues. I get high in the evening, simple pots of glue. Um, I love the honky cat sequence. Do you remember that one? That's when, um, uh, is it Richard Madden? What is he, oh, what is his name? What is his real name? John Reed, right? Is his is the manager's name that he has the affair with? Uh, sure. I don't remember. Yes, that's right. Remember. John Reed. Yes. So he basically is like, you know, let's go, and they and they start this very movie musical sequence of buying things and getting dressed up and having champagne and being taken care of and Mm -hmm. going to art, you know, auctions. And, um, and it's just a, it's a so much fun. And I didn't even really like that song very much. Uh, it was not one of my favorite songs, but after 30 plus years, I really, I love listening to that song now. So that's quite effective. I look back, boy, I must have been green. Bopping in the country, fishing in the stream, looking for an answer, trying to find a sign. Until I saw your city lights, honey, I was blind. They said, Get back, funky cat, better get back to the woods. Um. I want love, which of course is that the the first time that sort of everyone in the family sings mm-hmm. in their home back in in London, or I think it's Pinnell, Pinnell or Pimmel. I can't remember where where it is. You read this book, right? I did. Yeah, I actually, um, I didn't go into this film like expecting 
the world because I'm not actually a huge Elton John fan fan even though like I have a lot of respect for him as a writer but uh as a, like an artist I was never like a big fan right but uh, right. then like really really loved the film and learned some things that I didn't know about him which I thought I knew everything I needed to know about Elton John you know of course I knew the mythology of like you know the drugs and the alcohol and getting sober and all of that stuff but I definitely didn't know that much about his early life and his like early partnership with Bernie and how that came to be so I found all of that fascinating enough so that I did like read the book and yeah I definitely have a like much greater appreciation for elton than i did before because of this film not because yeah. of tim Hummer. Yeah. you tried really uh, really hard to make me an elton john fan when we first met <laughs> i did i did yeah. um i'm reading the book right now i'm about halfway through okay. so it's 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 you know very interesting to see again like why i mean some they just did a lot of stuff for dramatic effect sure and yeah to, to to create conflict or or whatever yeah. but um I wish they had found more moments of the I want love stuff, you know, and I think that uh, they kind of do this with Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, even though um, I wanted to love that moment more than it the way that it landed. And part mm-hmm. of it is honestly because I'm like, did they just did is Jamie Bell just not a singer, which is totally possible. And he just didn't go for that high note, that first high note in Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And you're like, it just kind of lands with a thud for me. When are you gonna come down? When are you going to land? I should have stayed on the farm. I should have listened to my old man. Maybe you'll get a replacement. Oh, I'm getting the bell. Plenty like me to be found. Buddy! Mongrels who ain't got a penny. Sniffing for tidbits like you on the ground. Um, so there's a few moments where I where I remember even being in the theater and, and being totally, totally into the film and immersed in the film, um, having a few little clunkers. And that was one of them, mm-hmm. which is a bummer because it's like right when, you know, it's right, it's really at the climax of the film. Um, but the Rocketman sequence, like I said, I loved that so much. And just the the little boy being the little boy making an appearance again because he was so great um and then having that whole sequence there and and being catapulted onto the stage Yeah, I love the way this that they use the music in the film. Um, I love the creative relationship that is at the center of his life, and that's really, I think, the thing that they hang their hat on the most in Rocket Man is that friendship mm-hmm. and that relationship. For sure, that's like the um, core relationship of the yeah. film. Yeah. And, you know, I had that with this dear friend of mine in, that I met in fourth grade. Like, we, he was an amazing artist. We dreamed up all sorts of things, including I was realizing, and I might have told you about this a long time ago, this idea for this fantasy musical that was kind of part oh, yeah. Brigadoon, Wizard, part Wizard of Oz, and part West Side Story. And he would draw the characters, and we'd plot out the story, and we'd both write lyrics. And uh, unfortunately, that you know partnership stopped. But... Um, but fortunately by then we had found each other and started working together. And I, I also take this musical and that relationship very personally for that reason, mm-hmm. as much as anything, because the, you know, the act of handing you something that I wrote and, and you sending me back a song, it's like, I, I love that moment in when they're writing your song, which oh, is, yeah more or less the way that he describes it in the book yeah and just the 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 sort of that magical feeling that you could see in both of them that were like oh my, oh my god, god this is this we've written something thing yeah, it's really gel together amazing. and it happened but yeah um i've always said and i know i used to say this to you all the time i've always said that elton john's biggest sin is that he lived um he's like harry <laughs> potter he's like the musician who lived 
if he had died of a drug overdose or suicide or he had been successful yeah. at killing himself, he would be heralded as one of the greatest songwriters of all time. And he still is one of the greatest songwriters of all time. But he also got old and made musicals and a bunch of albums that nobody really cared about. <laughs> Him and uh, um, his nemesis, Madonna. She's always like the, uh, she's always like uh, the most uh, controversial thing I did was stick around and, you know, God forbid, get old, get older. So, <laughs> yes, know. yes, yes. Um, yeah. And then he, you know, he got sober and married and has kids and that's not yeah. the recipe of legend. And it's it. But I think, um, God, you know, lucky for him, right? I mean, sure. you know, yeah. that would it would it would suck if that had not happened and he had Absolutely. not been through all that and come out on the other side. Um, there were a few things that I wanted to, which I thought were interesting. That in case you have seen the film and did take all of that stuff as gospel, there's a few quick things mm-hmm. that I was going to say that are not that that were very clearly not true. Embellished, which is yeah, which is like when he went to rehab. Um, it implies that he leaves Madison Square Garden mm-hmm. and goes immediately into a treatment center. He was actually treated in Chicago. Um, so he did not walk out of a... The, he but, did, there was actually a cancellation yeah. of a Madison Square Garden show, but it was because he was sick. And he didn't go to rehab in New York. He went to rehab in Chicago. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, but it's a great moment in the film. Oh, my God. I see why they did it because it's like very satisfying. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the end, the, the, um, you know, this is the thing that the timing of things was is some of them like the way that they use. They use music in several different ways, right? Like the I want love thing when they when they're using that in the beginning and the the family is singing that. Obviously, that song is from like, I think, mid 90s, Hmm. I think. Um, but it was different because it was being it was being used to tell sort of an emotional story that was happening in that moment. Whereas when they go to the when they're playing the um, the records for, I think, uh, uh, what's the Dick James is the music publisher, right? That his they're his first like major manager. Um, when they're playing those records, for some fucking reason, they're playing like I guess that's why they call it the blues or sad songs say so much. Those are both f- songs from the eighties. Yeah, like I didn't really later. understand like why are they doing that when there were so many songs that they had already written that they could have been playing. Hmm. So there were a few things like that again that I just thought like I, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. But um, but obviously that's just the way that they chose to do it. Uh, and and one of those actually is I'm still standing. It implied that I'm still standing um, was sort of a celebration of Elton finally becoming sober and conquering his addictions. <laughs> but this, this is on the IMDb page, but he did not give up alcohol until after filming the music video. In fact, Andy <laughs> Taylor of Duran Duran recalled getting drunk with Elton John on martinis and can during filming and throwing a massive all night party in which Elton's personal assistance hotel suite was quote leveled. Oh Waking up the next morning, a hungover Elton surveyed the damage and asked what happened. The assistant replied, you happened and Elton gave up alcohol shortly afterwards. Oh my God, that's funny. Well, maybe so, he, was, he um, was prescient. Is that is that how you say that word? I think that is how you say that uh, word. Wow, 50 cent word if I actually got that right. Uh, maybe he knew what was knocking on his door. Well, mm-hmm. yes, he. I think he did. I think sure, he, that was he had, he had many moments that yeah. he felt like this like, is something this is that I need be the to, thing that changes yeah, I need, me. Yeah. I need to take care of it. I need to yeah. get a hold of this yeah. shit. So, um, I don't think I have anything else to say about that, except that my freshman high school science teacher, Tommy Faust, was one of the people who also really got me into Elton John. Hmm. Um, and actually, I was probably only listening to like greatest hits albums okay. at that time, like greatest hits one and two, I think. Yeah. And then she like introduced me to some of the old albums yep. and like the Friends soundtrack, which which is still like a beautiful album Hmm. even though that movie i don't think ever went anywhere um that was recorded also really really early in his career but i mean my elton love is now strictly early elton and bernie like 70s um yeah that's the golden i have two physical albums now because what do you have uh the um What's the one where it's like sort of like a country house with the tumbleweed, tumbleweed connection? Yeah, and then oh, what's the, and then what's album. the big one? The big one with Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. No, what's the what's another one from um, that era? Captain Fantastic. No, so maybe it no. is 
Maybe it is Yellow Brick Road. I don't think so. But anyway. It's the two. The Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is the double album. Huh. Anyway. Um, I was pillaging albums from my parents' collection before their last move. I was like, I will take this. Oh, and then I got in a slight argument with my brother because he wanted one of them. Uh, and then I snapped and I was like, and I was like, who, who among the two of us is the gay piano player? And he was immediately, he was immediately, he immediately was like, oh, okay, okay, you're good. You, you should have that. Like, I just like shut him down. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not being a, con- con- I'm not being contrarian because, you know, if we had had this conversation like five years ago, I probably would have been making snarky comments left and right about Elton, but. No longer people change. Wow. D- just like Elton becoming sober. Yeah. I, I yeah. now have an appreciation for Elton John. I also love when people cover Elton John's songs. Remember, we yeah. we had a big love affair with Mary J. Blige when she covered oh. uh, Guess What's Why They Call It That's Why They Call It the Blues. Yes. Like her rendition yes. of that song was like fantastic. There's a. Did I tell you about that double album that came out like a couple of years ago? I think it's called not Restoration. Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. So there's one album that's like country artists and one album that's like more like pop rock artists, and it's really hmm. good. It's terrific, well, actually. Check it out. So you should check so, that out. Wow. There's a. There's a. Um. My father's gun, which I think is on tumble, Tumbleweed Connection. There's a, a. Oh, it's not Martina McBride. Fuck. What? It, it's uh the woman who was married to Blake Shelton. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> not, not really following it's Blake. Really Shelton. good. I know, but I bet you know who this is. Anyway, um, well, that's I'm, my that's my spiel. I, I just that. rewatched that movie, and it's I I really fucking yeah, love it. I probably I love everyone in it. I probably will rewatch it. There's also if you buy it um, on iTunes, there's a bunch of um, you can watch the musical sequences oh. separately, and several of the musical sequences are longer than they are in the film. Yeah. Honky Cat Extended. is probably like a couple minutes longer. Director's and cut. Yes, exactly. So there's there's some fun some fun things to watch. So. Um, I'm ready to pivot and talk about something that okay. I hate, but there's nothing more than I actually hate than my bladder. So, and I had two cups of coffee before we started recording. So I need to take a two minute break. Okay. So are we, are we, <laughs> we're going to put in some trans- transitional music right here. Give it to me. So what I've got going today is similar to our recent episode when I spoke about Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, because I do actually enjoy the source material here. It was originally a Disney animated movie musical, and it was actually the one that kicked off the Disney renaissance that keeps coming up as a topic on this podcast. And that film, of course, would be The Little Mermaid. No reaction. Oh, shock, uh, shock and awe. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I didn't see the musical, right. so I, I, this is exactly like Priscilla, Queen of the yeah. Desert, in that way. I I saw the movie, obviously, as mm. probably everyone on the planet did, but I did not see the yeah. mus- the stage musical. It didn't last very long, right? Uh, yeah. I'll get into that, but it didn't. Okay. It had okay. A respectable, but not a Disney esque run. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah. Unlike Priscilla, okay. I'm not going to talk too, too, too much about the original film. Because like you said, it's like, it's a, it was an instant classic. And, and unless you just emigrated to Earth from Mars, like you didn't, you didn't miss the film. Uh, yeah. And it's beloved to this day. But there were some tidbits when I was reading about it that were interesting to me. So I shall share. Uh, in terms of the development of the film, Walt Disney himself planned to put this story into a proposed package film containing 
uh, several Hans Christian Andersen stories, but scrapped the project. In 1985, then, while working on The Great Mouse Detective, writer and director Ron Clements and John Musker decided to adapt the fairy tale and proposed it to Disney Studios chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg, who initially declined due to its similarities to a, propo- to a proposed sequel to the 1984 film Splash, but ultimately approved it. Uh, Howard Ashman, who we've talked before on this podcast, uh, became involved, and he brought in Alan Menken for the music. The Little Mermaid was released to theaters on November 17th, 1989, to critical acclaim, earning praise for the animation, music, and characters. It was also a commercial success, garnering $84 million at the domestic box office uh, during its initial release, and $233 million in total lifetime gross. Little Mermaid was given credit for breathing life back into the art of Disney animated feature feature films after some films produced by Disney were struggling. Um, The film won two Academy Awards for Best Original Score and Best Original Song for Under the Sea. Was that before they had animated film, the animated film category? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Probably. Because I bet that if they had had the animated film category, it would have won the animated film. Oh, for sure. I feel like the animated film category, yeah, we'll have to look that up. Yeah. I feel like that started like in like the later. late 90s or something, mm, maybe. No. I mean, I didn't see that like, film, by the way, when it came out. Did you see oh, it when really? it came out? Uh, I mean, not you were like. in the theater, but like, you know, it would be okay. like huge. Again, right. Like right. VHS. Like, like everyone like owned a copy of that thing. Right. Um, right. 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 Fun, fun facts. Couple fun facts. Uh, one of the most prominent songs, Part of Your World, was nearly cut from the film when it tested poorly with children who became rowdy during the scene. Uh, this caused uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg to feel that the song needed to be cut, an idea that was resisted by the creative team. Both Musker and Clemens cited the similar situation of the song Over the Rainbow nearly being cut from 1939's The Wizard of Oz. Nice. So they sort of threw that back in the studio exec's uh, face. Uh, And during a second test screening, the scene, now colorized and further developed, tested well with a separate child audience. And lo and behold, the musical number was kept. So studio heads, the fuck do they know? What's a fire and why does it, what's the word, burn? When's it my turn? Wouldn't I love, love to explore that shore of Wow. <laughs> it's just so weird when you think, I mean, of, of course we know that that shit goes on. Yeah, of course. But it's just always it's so like weird when you, when you think uh, how close mm-hmm. it was to something. And yeah. if the, if the kid, the second kid crowd hadn't responded exactly. to it, like we like might not even know that song. Yeah. It's so it's bizarre. Crazy. Well, anyway, um, when it came out, Roger Ebert, uh, was enthusiastic about the film and commented positively on the character of Ariel stating, Ariel is a fully realized female character who thinks and acts independently, even rebelliously, instead of hanging around passively while the fates decide her destiny. Um, you were making a face. Is that I, a- that's because I hit the microphone <laughs> really hard. <laughs> I didn't know what to make of it. I was like, are you, are you having a reaction about Ariel being no. an independent woman? <laughs> no, I was having a reaction to you later having a reaction oh, being like, oh okay. my God, Tim hit the fucking mic. I was like, really didn't know what that reaction was all about. That was funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was, a, I mentioned the VHS release that like almost everybody had a fucking copy of this thing. So there was some controversy. I don't know if you'll remember this, but I was chuckling because I did. What? Controversy arose know. regarding the artwork for the film's original VHS release when consumers noticed an oddly shaped structure on the castle closely resembling a human penis. Disney and the cover no. Disney and the cover designer insist it was an accident resulting from a late night rush job what? to finish the cover artwork. The object does what? not appear on the cover of the second release of the movie. Yes, and that is not it. Another allegation is that the clergyman presiding over the wedding between Eric and Ursula is seen to have an erection. The object in question is actually the short, stubby-legged man's knee. The combined two incidents led an Arkansas woman to file suit against the Walt Disney Company in 1995 
though she dropped the suit two months later. <laughs> what? I actually remember both of those things because it's like friends of mine were like, oh my God, did you know like, there's like a penis on the cover of the VHS? Yeah. Um, do you know that I just d- did a Google and the okay. Little Mermaid Black Diamond Band cover VHS <laughs> is selling on Etsy for, like $4, for $45,000. What? <laughs> no. $45,000? I'm not dollars. <laughs> $45,000. There are other ones that are selling. This is the, oh no, there's one for 50. There's one for $50,000. Why? Just that why? is insane. That, oh my God, isn't that so funny? Yeah, but yeah, I like distinctly remember that. I'm like, can we just keep talking about that and not have to talk about the stage musical? But anyway, let's talk about the stage musical. <laughs> The stage musical has a book by Doug Wright, uh, music by Alan Menken, and lyrics oh by Oh, my Howard God, really? Ashman. Doug Wright wrote that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, with additional okay. lyrics by Glenn Slater. Musical began, the musical began previews on Broadway at the Lundfontaine Theater on November 3rd, 2007. Uh, it opened on January 10th, 2008. The production closed on January 30th, 2009 after 50 previews and 685 performances to answer your question. So that is not a oh, Disney s- run. So like almost two years though. Uh, yeah, January of 08 to August 30th of 2009. So yeah, like a year and a half. Like, okay, okay. Um. As we often talk about on this podcast, this was a case of expectations. The Little Little Mermaid is, you know, as we said, is modern day classic. And it seemed to me pretty perfect for staging since the film, the actual writing book, music lyrics, uh, because the film was essentially already constructed as a musical. So other than figuring out like how to stage it. Right. It was like it was a musical. Right. It's not a huge stretch, but it's the figuring out how to stage it aspect that basically tanked the whole production for me. Um, regarding the musical's development, uh, Thomas Schumacher, who I guess was head of, must have been head of Disney theatricals, approached uh, director Francesca Zambello, who she was more from the classical music background. She serves as director of Glimmerglass Festival and the Washington National Opera. This was her Broadway debut. He told her that we haven't found a way to do the water. Zambello's experience with the fantasy elements of opera made her open to the project, and the decision was made that there would be no water, wires, or flying in the production. This for me, was ultimately the production's undoing. I'm not a traditionalist by any stretch of the imagination, and on paper, I appreciate their desire to say, no, 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 let's like do something unexpected and inventive, like, you know, kind of like their Lion King adaptation. Right, right. But the problem is they neither Peter Pan the fuck out of it, which I think they probably should have, and made a satisfying traditional production, nor did they achieve anything close artistically to the Lion King. In creating the underwater world on stage, director Zambello asked her designing her design team of George Sipin, Sipin, uh, sets Natasha Katz lighting and Tatiana Nogionva costumes to use translucent materials to create abstract shapes and manipulate light to give the watery illusion. Incidentally, I don't remember that at all. But what I do remember so is So there was there was no watery illusion. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not remember that. But what I do remember is this next part. For the performer's movements, choreographer Stephen Meir had the actors wear Healy's wheeled footwear, dubbed, quote, Merblades, while, um, while tails on sprung steel rods designed by Michael Curry were attached to their hips. So at this point, I want to ask if you remember Healy's. Are those like the tennis shoes yes. that had the little? Yeah, yes. I kind of do. They were these fad I, shoes yes, that kids yes, wore yes. around this time. Yep, and they would yep. skate around on the sidewalk, erratically getting in your way. So yes. they, they are because they were could like, just like pop out of the yeah, shoe. They could right? just like they, they were just like popped out of the, out of the shoe. shoe. Yeah, yeah. So when the cast was like quote swimming, they would just lift their heels up and skate around stage with these tails flapping behind them. So more than anything, the whole thing looked cheap cheap it was like an afterthought and something you'd catch on a cruise ship while knocking back a couple mai tais and this cheapness it offended me deeply because i was like this is disney 
there are no deeper pockets. They didn't like have to drum together 150 people to pitch in their personal money to put on a Broadway show. We're talking about a massive corporation with billions of dollars, you know, that they could throw something on stage with like a rounding error of their annual profits. I'm like, if you're going to try to take over Broadway with corporate money, the bare minimum you can do is like put on lavish productions that look expensive and make your jaw drop. Like, it actually offended me. <laughs> well, I mean, for all of the reasons that you have stated, exactly, exactly. It's not like they're some ragtag production company yeah. that they're they're trying to you like know was nobly put up some Broadway, new, I'd right, be like, right, or like right. yeah, some like independent theater company. I'd be like, or okay, like fine. us Healy's. trying to fucking find okay, a way to Mer put Blades. up a show. Sure, yeah, but I yeah, was like, yeah. no, <laughs> to put up, throw something up that looked cheap. I was like, fuck you. Uh, anyway, which it, I guess a lot of people had that reaction, oh, right? hundred yeah, percent. It was pretty hard to distract myself from my seething at the physical elements of the production. But from what I can recall, some of the other aspects of the show were not objectionable. Uh, the cast was good. The original cast featured newcomer Sierra Bogues. I hope I didn't butcher her last name in the title role of Ariel. Uh, I think I read that she had a background in figure skating, which kept in handy, which, which, which was, you know, handy for the Heelys. Handy for the Heelys. Handy for the Heelys. Uh, it sounds like somehow gross. Um, Sean Palmer <laughs> as Prince Eric. This was fun. I don't think I realized this when I saw this. He was, uh, he's also known as Stanford Blatch's boyfriend, Marcus, on the HBO series Sex in the City. Oh my God. Yeah, yes, of like course. The, like hunky guy. Yeah. He actually has a nice moment in the, in the production. He sings a song, quote, her voice that sounds super Disney. It's like, it kind of sounds like an outtake from the stage version of Beauty and the Beast. Norm Lewis was King Triton. Sherry Sherry Renee Scott, whom I Norm uh, Lewis. Wait, yeah, King Triton. Who's Norm Lewis? Uh, he's like a big musical theater person. He done a lot of like mega musicals. You know, like Phantom. You know, I think he did Jean Valjean probably at some point. Uh, I saw him in that site specific um, Sweeney Todd. Sweeney. Anyway, he's a big oh, musical theater oh. person. Oh, I think I was thinking of Norm from Cheers. Never mind. <laughs> Okay. What? As King Triton. <laughs> that would be pretty fucking random. Norm from Cheers. I'm stuck yeah, on that know. one. Uh, anyway, Sherry Renee Scott was Ursula, who I just adore her. We've talked about her on this podcast a couple times before. Debbie Does Dallas is the one that I always remember. In the last five years, she originated that role. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually didn't remember this. Titus Burgess from, you know, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt was Sebastian, the crab. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, What else? On the writing, I actually don't remember much. But playwright Doug Wright, as I mentioned, was brought on as book writer, focusing the storyline on Ariel's longing not for her prince, but for, quote, a world in which she feels truly realized in her own terms. Her ambitions are bigger than any one man. I have no recollection if they exceeded in this endeavor, but it was certainly an admirable, admirable goal. Um, for the songs, Mencken brought on lyricist Glenn Slater, whom he'd worked with on the 2004 animation film Home on the Range. Do you remember this? Home on the Range? No. Okay. It's apparently an, an animated film about a mismatched trio of dairy cows with cast Roseanne Barr, Judy Dench, Jennifer Tilly, Cuba Gooding what? Jr., Randy Quaid, and Steve Buscemi. What? I was reading this like, is this one of those Mandela effect things? Like, I don't, you know, like with that movie Shazam with Sinbad that actually never happened. Like, I was like, I have like never heard of this movie. I'm like, are we sure this really happened? Uh, yeah. Um, so Mencken and Slater together wrote 10 new songs for the stage musical, injecting some wow. new musical elements uh, like cabaret, vaudeville, and 60s rock. 
listening back, I, you know, I did a little did a little listening uh, last weekend. It's a bit of a mixed bag, but some of the new songs were actually stronger than I remembered. Uh, there's a song called I Want the Good Times Back. Uh, this is sung by Ursula, Sherry Renee Scott. Uh, Ursula is seeking revenge against her brother, King Triton. She was banished from the palace for using black magic and tells her minions Flotsam and Jetsam to keep an eye on Ariel, whom she thinks will be the key to getting the crown and trident. It's got a cabaret vibe to it, and it's a total showpiece for Sherry Renee. In days of yore, show up, use of power. So. Ain't that what power's for? right in line with the vibe of Poor Unfortunate Souls, which is the Act 1 closer, right before Ariel signs the agreement to lose her voice and turn into a human. Uh, Another new song is She's in Love. Uh, This happens after Ariel returns home from saving Prince Eric from drowning in a storm. Uh, Her behavior makes her sisters and flounders suspect that she's fallen in love. It's got this 1960s vibe. It kind of sounds like it could be in like Little Shop or Hairspray. Flounder, who's played by a kid, has some cute moments in that. He sings, she acts like me, she don't see me. Uh, She acts like she don't see me, she doesn't even speak. She treats me like sashimi, left over from last week. You see her late at night, tossing in her ocean bed, etc., etc. Um, but they weren't all hits. There is a grating new song and that was in the mix. The Act Two opener, Positivity. Sebastian and Flounder bring Ariel, newly human, to shore. Scuttle and the seagulls, scuttles like the head seagull, I think, give her a pep talk to raise her spirits and help her get used to her new legs. Here's a lyric. But if he's no sage and he's no whiz, the whole world thinks that we're geniuses because all our screws may be unscrewed, but dig our attitude. We got positricity. We got positivity. It gives us the bang and the bang and the yippy dip doodle. That's why we sounds like there's knowledge in our noodle. And once you learn that word, there ain't nothing you can't do. So let that positricity, positricity work for you. It's like a low rent Liza with a Z or maybe like Hakuna Matata, which is like the low point of Lion King for me. I mean, I suppose it uh, serves as like a mindless act to opener, but it's never actually funny. Seems like a great song to ignore when you're like annoyed at the people climbing back late from intermission with a big gulp and like order of chicken fingers, which would definitely be what people were eating at a Disney musical. Right, right. If they could, if they could, (laughs) that is, if they were allowed to. Are you sure they're not allowed to? I'm scared about what Broadway comes back, what they're going to need to do to monetize. It's going to be like people with like Ooh. nachos and shit. <laughs> I'm like, I was already annoyed by people beforehand. But anyway, uh, what else? There's a song called Behind My Wildest Dreams, which is pretty paint by numbers too. And this song, Ariel's fascinated by the human world while the maids wonder why Eric has brought such a girl to the palace. I mean, a lot of the meh songs are kind of in act two. Uh, and I remember the musical losing steam there, which I actually so think wait, is, is, is oh, are the, ahead. are the big, big numbers that we know from the movie yeah, in act the, one? They're all in there. Um, but like part of your world is obviously. Oh yeah. That's one. obviously that's and under the sea is obviously in act one. Um, I don't remember about under the sea. Um, can I frantically look that up? Um, Under the Sea is in Act 1. 
<laughs> yeah. So, Poor okay. unfortunate so you... souls I had mentioned was the uh, sort of act one ender. So yeah, there are no kiss, kiss the girl. That's the only one. Yeah. In act two that song. Really? Okay. Hmm. I mean, um, not off the top of my head. I don't. Okay. Yeah. Act two, it definitely loses steam. Well, she's human. I feel like it, I feel like the story right. just gets less interesting right. once she comes right. to shore and is human. Cause then it just kind of becomes this like love story. Right. Right. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the partnership of Alan Menken and Glenn Slater, who did the music and lyrics, as I mentioned. Alan Menken and Glenn Slater, they've worked together on a number of projects beyond this. Uh, and I mentioned that uh, Mandela Effect movie, Home on the Range, uh, including the stage production Sister Act, the musical, Leap of oh. Faith, the featured film Tang- oh. Tangled, and the TV show Gallivant on just ABC. Just watched that this past, just, just watched what? Tangled this past Tangled? summer. Yeah, I don't I've think I've ever actually before. seen that, but I did see that TV show Gallivant on ABC. Don't uh, know about that. Okay, well, we can do a little rewind on that. So, yeah, so basically Glenn Slater became Alan Menken's primary lyricist and writing partner, you know, after the death of Howard Ashman. I'm mentioning Mr. Bride context for what I'm about to say next, which is that Alan Menken is an asshole. Um, what? what do you mean? I can't sugarcoat it. And I'm sorry to be blunt, but the extremely successful EGOT-winning composer Alan Menken is an asshole. <laughs> I've been loath to really trash any musical theater writers that I met during my stint working at Musical Theater Works because it was oh. so long ago. And on rare occasions, you know, people can change. Also, sure. I'm like, and also know- every once in a while, someone has a bad day. Correct. I was like, yeah. that's just yeah. what I was going to say. Yeah. It's like you never know when somebody's just having a bad day or week or month. I mean, people go through shit. Having yeah, said yeah. that, and my brief interaction with him led me to the undeniable conclusion that he's an asshole. Um, at MTW, we were at MTW. We were doing songwriting workshops, and we were bringing in all sorts of composer lyricists to work with budding writers. And we had booked him for one. In most cases, we brought in either a writer that did both music and lyrics, or a team that did both. Uh, in his case, of course, Howard Ashman had passed away, and I don't think he'd like been paired up with a steady writing partner quite yet. And it must have been suggested to him by artistic director Lonnie Price that he bring in Glenn Slater, given that they had just started working together, presumably on that weird movie, Home on the Range, that I don't remember. Uh, Alan then wrote back some poison pen email that I saw with my own eyes, which took great, great offense to the idea of sitting on a panel with Glenn Slater. The message was essentially that Glenn was beneath him, not at his level to sit on a panel with him, I guess because he was younger in his career. I knew that the two of them had started working together. So I was like, whoa, this is not even like some random recent NYU Tisch grad, which like still would be pretty despicable in terms of like the level of response, which was incensed. Like, how dare you (laughs) think that he's on my level? I was like, isn't this somebody that you're like allegedly collaborating with? Um, my guess is Lonnie must have picked up the phone and talked him off the ledge because he did indeed like leading the workshop with Glenn. It was hard for me to get past this initial email impression, and I definitely could be exaggerating, but I also recall him being a pill in person. I distinctly remember him taking like making multiple disparaging comments about Howard Ashman during the session, and at the time what? thinking like, oh my God, what the fuck is his problem? This man has had like insane artistic and commercial success and he's now trashing his former writing partner writing partner who died of aids his partner who essentially like very recently him right? this major career yeah i mean howard was the one in the driving seat for the projects that made them famous i was like what are you so pissed about that he died and couldn't make you more money so yeah tale is all this time to quote musically him uh, you know money doesn't make you happy it seems like Wow. I should mention this wasn't even a meet your idols type situation where I'd like built him up in my mind and was disappointed. I did not lay awake at night aspiring or thinking about Alan Menken. I thought he was gifted as a melody writer, but, um, and that he could come up with a super hummable tune. And I really loved little shop of horrors, but like, that's about it. Oh, right. I keep forgetting that that's, yeah. That yep, was the thing okay. that kicked it all off. Yep. Okay. But, you know, I'm sure he's a wonderful person now. I'm sure the buckets of additional money he's made since then on even more movie and television product projects have made him an even warmer and generous person. And I should wrap that rant up by saying allegedly, because of course I didn't retain work emails from 18 years ago. So I don't have any receipts here. So one big allegedly. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't really have anything else to say about this artistic miss of a Broadway production, except that it was a free ticket and I still hated it because <laughs> I, uh, I mean, my brother gave me like a gift certificate to see it, um, except I did say out loud, how do you fuck up the Little Mermaid? Like, just like, this is what keeps me up at night. It's like, how do you fuck up the Little Mermaid? But they did. They really did. Well, I remember that when this came out, and I don't—I honestly don't think I had seen the movie even when this came out. I think I saw this movie like within the last ten years. Mm. Um, but I do remember thinking, "Oh, this would be," you know, because I think the Lion King was out, right? It was after the Lion King. Yeah, 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 for sure. And so I think yes. that, of course, I mean, you—you you know, you on some level, you do feel bad for anyone who's trying to put up a Disney mu- musical on stage mm-hmm. after the lion king because it oh, did of course. it did but something I don't know that this was so the one transformative right after. um it I was that, pretty didn't they do tarzan soon. or something but oh they might have you're right i think they might that have might have tarzan, which was also a flop yeah it was and but i but what i was going to say is i remember again it's sort of like this thing we 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 both do this of course because tickets are so fucking expensive that you you ask someone that you trust who's seen it mm-hmm. and you're like hey is this worth it and whoever it was and who knows it might have been you it was like absolutely not it's a fucking <laughs> it's so lame yeah and so i just never even considered going you know you did you missed nothing so this is not a theater regret this is this not a theater is not regret a theater that i should regret. have there but are maybe so many it will be a podcast regrets, but... regret when somehow co- word gets to Alan Menken, who seems like oh. he's probably pretty litigious. So, and <laughs> 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 has like a shit ton of money and probably doesn't want his name marred by some no name. <laughs> he's just he's just gonna sue us. <laughs> sue you? I'm gonna sue those I think assholes. Hopefully, he'll that just never sue happen. you. Since you're the one who really said all that stuff and <laughs> spoke of personal knowledge, yeah. like intimate personal knowledge. <laughs> I mean, what is he going to um, sue me for? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. You have some nice plants back there. They're dead. <laughs> or really? Their, they're on their way to death. This is the longest I've ever kept a plant alive in my life. So. Oh, shoot. I've got my own I'm little, little shop that. of horrors. <clears throat> Um, well, that is. Um, did I ever tell you that when John and I went to? Do you have? We wait, can Dis- you balance this by like saying another? Even though he's not an idol to me, by this, uh, telling some sort of "Don't meet your idol" story. Oh, I don't think I have any "Don't meet really? your idol" stories because I don't think that I like anyone that much. <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, you know, the Edward Albee story, which I told last mm. week, it, and I, but it wasn't personal, of course. Um, I, I thought, although I think I did tell you when we went to that, when we went to his Christmas party and I, we, this was, oh wait, no, yeah, 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 that was a long time ago. Sometimes I keep thinking that maybe you were there, but it was John. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember like insisting that we spend like $50 on a bottle of sh- real champagne okay. to bring to Edward Albee's Christmas party. Yeah. And I gave it to him and he just set it on the floor in the bedroom. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and you know, like at that time, a $50 bottle of champagne. Yeah, I, like- I mean, still, I we don't regularly buy $50 bottles of champagne, but then it was like a lot of fucking money. An and I was like, oh. Well, well didn't get in addition to the fact that you know that whole thing about him not rewriting but there's not yeah i don't think i have i don't i don't nothing's coming to me i'll have to think Hmm. about that but i do have um john and i went to walt disney world make something up about somebody so we can really get well i have a i have a funny Hmm. story i'm trying to tell you um we went to walt disney world like before John left ABC. So this was like seven years ago. And we had, I had never been, I think John had been when he was a child and we, you know, stayed on property and we went to all the parks and we spent Mm. like, I think we were there for like five days and we went on the little mermaid ride. ride. Thunder mountain. Of course. Okay. And we rode the little mermaid ride and it 
got something went wrong and we got um stuck watching the little part of the world where she like, was like singing that oh like we we were there for like 20 minutes yeah oh just God. watching this scene like, like this little animatronic mermaid torture. for like 20 minutes and of course we had had an edible so it was like it probably we it felt like we were there for like an hour oh my god that reminds um, me of when i was in a fraternity which is its own punchline that i was in a fraternity uh when we were being like you know lightly hazed for our quote hell week uh this was like my sophomore year of college or something but um before i knew you and obviously you didn't stay in the fraternity no no okay 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 no but like i was like a year and a half i was like technically in it anyway i only lived there for like a year but my freshman year was when i was being like quote hazed and we had like a hell week if you will where they would like you know just mess with you and we, uh, the pledges had to go over to the house and we, uh, they had us like clean, they had, we were having us like clean. I'm just like really spilling the tea. I'm like trying to get sued here. <laughs> no. Uh, so I, uh, they had the pledges, like we had to like clean the walls of the uh, basement with like a toothbrush or something. So they gave us like toothbrushes to clean it. And like, of course in like in the middle of the night too. But they were supposed to torture us. Like the additional level of torture is that they were playing Dolly Parton nine to five over and over. And I was like, (laughs) bitch, you don't even understand. Like I could hear this 24 hours a day and it wouldn't be enough. And I was like chuckling in my mind. (laughs) Like I love that I'm supposed to like think that's your torture. torture. Right, right. And meanwhile, I was like, I thought you were going to say that you had to like, stick the toothbrush up your butt or something no no although they did have this is really disgusting they did have have us but i for some reason i feel like you'll enjoy this they had us like uh (laughs) the last night that we have this hell week they brought us down to the basement and we had to like it was like dark and we had to run down like a and go down a slip and slide where they had like covered it with all of these disgusting things like pig's feet and like syrup what? syrup and like all of this shit and again you know i have a very absurdist sense of humor so like i just thought this was like hilarious like all of this but like meanwhile like the guy behind me is literally like in tears like, like crying like, like having crying, a breakdown like having a breakdown like this is horrible and i was like this is so stupid i cannot take this seriously like i just thought it was hilarious but um oh my god yeah uh i i i god i don't have i need to think of one i need to think of a of a meet your heroes Mm. what is it called what did you say it was oh i said meet your you know meet your idols meet your idols disappointment don't meet your idols right don't meet your idols don't meet your idols don't meet your idols next time we can do a little rewind on that yes yeah don't meet your idols that's that's i'll show you my uh my fraternity pledge paddle that I actually just found <laughs> in the closet two days ago when I was cleaning. I was like, I kept this. So yeah, I can show and tell that. Oh my God. We should bring that to camp. Yeah. Um, I'll do it. All right. All right. Well, thanks for bearing right. with me on all that. <laughs> this is, will probably be our last episode before we're shut down. Um, but thanks oh, for listening. Okay. It was good while it lasted. Yeah, thank you all for listening. And hey, oh, we have a we have we have a really exciting episode coming up. Um, oh, yeah, we have Let's announced uh, that we have Robert and Steph coming yep. from Tender, Tender Creature. Creature. Yeah, we're gonna listen to some of their beautiful music, sample some yep. of their beautiful music, and we're gonna talk about musicals because that's what we do. That's what we do. Geography, musicals, pledge hazing, and musical and musical theater. All right. Till next time. Ciao.